everybody, and welcome to the Energetic Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa LaFera, an astrologer, tarot consultant, all-around creative from sunny San Diego, California. And this is the 120th episode of the podcast, airing October 1st, 2021. Now, in this episode, I'm delighted to present to you my discussion with astrologer and psychotherapist Margaret Gray, who joined me on the podcast to chat about the popular subject, the astrology of love and relationships where Margaret and I take the opportunity to highlight a branch of astrology that is highly sought after by many clients, as we all desire to find love and grow through connection. First, I inquired what sparked her interest in this topic, which actually led us to both muse on how being only children can affect relating as an adult, as both Margaret and I are only children, and it did open up a can of worms that was rather interesting. We then dove into various chart techniques, misconceptions about finding love in the chart, and what the two most important planets in relating actually are. We do hope you find this discussion helpful in manifesting and maintaining rewarding relationships. Now, a fabulous way to show appreciation for this podcast and my astrological efforts is by making a one-time donation over at Mel's Tip Jar or by booking a personal consultation with yours truly, all of which can be done over at my website, energeticprinciples.com. Now, just a couple of quick announcements before we get started here. I mentioned in my last broadcast that I do have a new monthly newsletter called The Heavenly Wind. Now, my October edition has gone out and it has reached the inboxes and is chocked full of all types of juicy information for the October astrology, where I do a rundown of all the key transits with little sort of like blurbs that give you kind of like a quick heads up as to what the energy might look like. There is rundowns of the sun, Mercury, Venus, and Mars and their moves throughout the month of October. There's an elemental tarot spread that gives some fun things to think about and also an animal ambassador to guide us. So if that's something you think you'd be interested in, you can go and sign up uh, in the description of this podcast to the mailing list so you can have it in your inbox, or you can do that over at my website as well. And I will send out another round uh, a couple days into October for those of you who who are just signing up now. Now, there is also still time to sign up for Spencer Michaud's three-part series where he is doing webinars on the decans of the fall signs, Uh, and not signs that are in fall, but the signs of fall, at least here in the Northern Hemisphere, and that is Libra, Scorpio, and Sagittarius. And so he's going to be airing his first live webinar on Saturday, October 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern, which is going to be on the Decans of Libra. So it'll be a two and a half hour interactive online workshop where he's going to get into all the juicy things about the Decans, like the esoteric meanings, the diamonds, the tarot correspondences, the fixed stars, all types of rich history about the faces and the Libran mythology and archetypes that go along with these decans. And of course, he will continue to do that through Scorpio and Sagittarius through uh, their corresponding seasons as well. So if that's something that you are interested in signing up for or learning about, uh, it you can do so through the podcast description as well. And if you do so by using my special code, which is EP20, you can get 20% off either the one-time webinar, which is $45, or you can get the three-part bundle for $125. And, you know, Spencer, he is chalked up 
so much information. Like he is just a never ending source of very cool things. And if you've caught him on the podcast before, you already know that. Uh, So I do highly recommend his webinars and offerings. So once again, my special code is EP20, which you can put in checkout and receive 20% off. All right. So who's ready to board the astrology love boat? Toot toot. Here we go. Now let's meet our guest. All right. I am so happy to welcome to the program here today. We have Margaret Gray with us. Thank you for joining me, Margaret. Oh, thank you for having me here, Melissa. It's so lovely to meet you and to be here with you chatting about astrology. Oh, yes. Who doesn't love to chat or listen? If you're listening about astrology, it is a never-ending topic of interest for, uh, of course, myself, and I'm assuming Margaret. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And um, and for those of you, before we get started here today, we're going to be talking about, ooh, who doesn't like this? The astrology of love and relationships, because it is, it is still Libra season, and Scorpio will only follow. <laughs> and we know that, uh, I mean, love and relationships is important. Any time of year, right? Because it's on it's on most of our minds every day. But uh, there is something to be said about Libra and Scorpio season being um, a little a little hot spotty for <laughs> for relationship, for relationship energy. But before we get started here, Margaret, tell the listeners who you are, where you come from, what you do, all that good stuff. Sure, I'd love to. Well, um, I grew up in Ireland. Um, Italian mother, Irish father. And then I also lived in the States for a period of time in Hawaii and I lived in the UK. And when I was in the UK, I became interested in astrology. And uh, my first teacher was a psychological astrologer, which really fascinated me. And so I studied with her for about six years, a very small, intense group, and then studied at the CPA in London. And I've been a psychological astrologer ever since, but I really found myself getting more and more interested in relationships. I've got natal Venus in the seventh house, so I suppose it makes sense. (laughs) Um, And really, that was what drew me to set up relationships and astrology, initially with my colleague Armand Diaz, and now with Yvonne Smith-Tarnas. And in fact, there's a whole team of us with Kay Taylor and Rachel Lang and Yvonne and Armand, and um, we run relationships and astrology. And um, it's just so great to work with a group of people because, of course, we're talking about relationships. So it's about how we can each contribute to the learning of relationships and astrology. And also, I'm a psychotherapist, and I work extensively with couples, not just with couples, but a lot with couples as well as individuals. So it's kind of interesting to bring the two together as well and to use astrology to help my psychotherapy work and my psychotherapy work helps my astrology. So that's really a little bit about my background. Mm, yes, I can imagine. It's it's always interesting to think about psychotherapy and especially in relation. Well, because a lot of times people, well, I mean, there's therapy for individuals, of course, uh, but a lot of people end up seemingly going to therapy because of relationships or to try to work on relationships um, more so than working on themselves. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a psychotherapist, so I don't know. But I'm when I'm thinking of like when people might be introduced to therapy, sometimes it's like we're going because we want to work on this together. Like maybe we need therapy together. <laughs> 
Well, you know, we're in relationship all the time. So we're constantly relating. Even as soon as we go outside our door and we're even going to a store, we're relating to the people at the store. And relationships, their purpose is really to trigger things within us, to trigger growth. And, you know, how often do we go outside the door and we, we think we're in an okay mood and then we meet a neighbor and they say something and suddenly we kind of feel a bit upset or a bit disturbed or, or maybe very happy and very joyful. And so something happens in that meeting, in that sinistry with that person that effectively triggered something in us. And I think relationship astrology can really kind of help us understand what happened. The same as psychotherapy can help couples to understand what are those dynamics? What happened with me that, you know, this relationship triggered in me? And so we go back to learning about ourselves and doing the work on ourselves as well as creating those bridges between us and finding, really, it's recognizing there are always bridges and creating bridges that, that work for both of us. Yeah, there are there are bridges all around. And there are also mirrors. <laughs> as we're saying, there's yes. so many. We are in a hall of mirrors every day, basically. <laughs> we really are. And, you know, Melissa, we've all been through this extraordinary 18 months where, you know, you and I were chatting earlier about how, you know, we, we all had to, we really took stock of our relationships, whether we were living with somebody who was a long-term partner and maybe we were thrown together to live and work together. And so our the relationship dynamics changed, or whether maybe we were all at home with children as well and having to homeschool children and the different roles were highlighted, or whether we were maybe grown-up children returned home to live suddenly and kind of after years of being away, or whether we were on our own and figuring out how does this feel. Um, so I think we've all had quite a bit of time to really consider, is this also the right relationship for me? You know, if, if there's another lockdown ever, hopefully not, but is are these the people I want to be with? Or would I rather be on my own? Or would I rather be with a friend or with a housemaid? So it's been quite an extraordinary, really, 18 months of time to evaluate what relationships mean to us. And when when we haven't been able to connect with maybe loved ones across the sea or, you know, in other countries, so on, what that has been like for us. Who have we missed? Who have we not missed? And what is it that we missed? And what is it that wasn't possible over Zoom or over FaceTime or all those things? So I think it's been quite an unusual time in terms of really thinking about our relationships. Yeah, I definitely agree because, you know, when we're just bumbling through everyday life before this happens, yes. it's just, you know, you uh, kind of have routines with other people and, you know, you keep really certain relationships up out of, um, uh, out of courtesy out of familiarity. And when you have that uh, barrier, uh, that, that Saturn, an Aquarius barrier of sorts to kind of separate everybody. Like I, I like that you brought up, you know, who do I want to be around? Who maybe do I not? Because it's not just romantic relationships. It was like friendships. It was, you know, just the whole thing. Because when you're going through the motions and you don't stop and really assess, you know, like, does this resonate with me anymore? Or does this person resonate? Um, it's yeah. You just don't have that time to really, I don't know. It was a good opportunity to basically change your life relationally because of the space that was created and the observations <laughs> that came yes. through that space. 
Yes, I think it was a very rich time, you know, rich time for inner work and a rich time, as you say, for relational work. I think it was an extremely rich time, even though, of course, it had its challenges. But my hope is that we come out of it with a lot more awareness. Yeah, I think we, I think we have, um, or at least I'd like to think we have, uh, and it's always a work in progress, right? It is always oh, a work in progress. Yes. So, yes. uh, well, talking about learning about relationships before we start in on some more, uh, the astrology of relationships, and I'm going to pick Margaret's brain about some of these things, uh, tell the listeners just a little bit, well, you can go to, into it more detail later in the program, but um, tell me a little bit about the upcoming uh, intensive, the two-term intensive that you're going to, that you are currently coordinating. Yes, the five of us in relationships and astrology put together a program, which is very much a program, which is a certificate course specialization in the astrology of love and relationships, because not a lot of astrologers work with relationships. And the ones that do have often over the years kind of said to us, we'd like to learn some more specific skills. And also people who are passionate about astrology, but maybe aren't even practicing astrologers, but they love using astrology for themselves. They say, you know, oh, I'd love to be able to figure out what the dynamics are with my mom or with my children or with my neighbors or with my boss at work. And so we've put together this course, which is two terms, but split into four sections. You can do any of the four sections or the whole lot. If you do the whole lot, you get a certificate at the end um, on the astrology of love and relationships, because we wanted really to help people to specialize in that area so that they would have all the skills or most of the skills, never everything, of course, but most of the skills they need to feel confident in really looking at charts of themselves with other people and the charts of clients um, in relationships. So it's an exciting course. We're very excited. We're all teaching on it. So there's five of us all contributing from our own perspective. And um, it starts at the end of October. And we have um, extended the early bird raid until October 10th, because we know it's been a pretty tough year for everyone. So, you know, feel free to join. And on Sunday evening, this Sunday, we're also offering a free webinar on the astrology of relationships. So if you'd like to get a taster of how we work, you're very welcome to come to that. Just go to our website, which is www.relationshipsandastrology.com and go to the contact page and you just subscribe and we'll send you the free link to the free webinar on Sunday evening. Mm. All right. Well, then I'll make sure to get this podcast out by Sunday, just so the listeners can oh, thank so, so get in there just in time. Yes, to, yes. Uh, yes. Oh, I love it. And who are the, who are the facilitators? I know you mentioned Rachel Lang, who has been on the podcast a handful of times. We just love. Oh, Rachel. how wonderful Rachel. I've known Rachel for such a long time. She's just wonderful. Um, and she's of course just launched her book on magic yesterday. Yes. So that's so exciting. Um, so there's Rachel Lang, there's Yvonne Smith-Tarnas, who is a psychoanalyst as well as an astrologer, um, and she actually teaches on my on the Introduction to Astrology course that we both do together. There's Kate Taylor, of course, who is the director of OPA and okay. is very experienced in relationship astrology. And there's my colleague Armand Diaz, who's also a PhD and who, is, who wrote Separating Aspects. So um, we all really kind of bring our various, you know, we come from various directions. K is evolutionary. Um, 
Armand is transpersonal astrology. Um, Yvonne, of course, more Jungian. And um, really, you know, we, we all come to it from our diverse aspects. So people get quite a good difference in perspectives as well and approaches with relationship astrology. Oh, I love it. So that's, well, it's all coming back. It's all coming back to me now because uh, in my San Diego Astrological Society days, um, we we hosted Armin uh, for a talk on relationships. And I remember the dynamic New Yorker, right? Yes. Yes, he was. And I think that might've been when I first ever heard your name because he had mentioned that he had a, a partner that he tends to either, you know, teach and facilitate with and bounce ideas off of. Yeah, we started working together about, I gosh, might be about five years ago because we were both giving talks at conferences on relationship astrology. And of course, I had read his book, Separating Aspects. So we kind of met up as a com- at a conference as you do. We said, hey, fancy doing some, some webinars or something together. And that's how it all started, really. And we started doing some courses. And then, you know, the others came on board this year. And Yvonne, because our man's been so busy with NCGR um, because he's president of NCGR, then Yvonne took over and she's been kind of um, the co-organizer with me. And, um, you know, we were already doing it together. So it's great to have a team of people to do it with. It's so much fun as well. We laugh so much when we're working together. So it's great. Ah, yes. The the Senate. The synastry, the synergy, the <laughs> the energy yes. together, and that is what relationships do, right? It's not just our exactly. own energy; it's the combination and the in the unique combinations that are creations within themselves. And that's like what that's what Tara All and I were talking about in the Libra season podcast is the idea of you know the the three parts of relationship and you know the you the me and the entity of the relationship itself, which forms its own. Um, It's very, very important. It's pretty important for us all to have that together. And I think the other thing we share, I was thinking the other day about all the things we share as a group, and we all work a lot with our intuition to different degrees. But I think that's another thing that, that, and that wasn't, we just realized that as we were coming together, that somehow that was something we had in common. And that really helps, you know, it helps because it, it just gives that additional way of kind of viewing the world and experiencing the world and and kind of also helps around being sensitive with each other and you know valuing each other which is so important and being respectful yes yeah as as a person with water signs i totally get i totally get that approach (laughs) um so well it makes me wonder you know since you're so steeped in the world of relationships uh you know through the course of your life what sparked that interest in you know, assessing love or even, even in adding astrology to it. Like what brought you to be, I'm interested in relationships and by gone it, I'm going to spend my life doing this. You know, I, I often say this at the start of talks, probably because I've struggled in my own relationships throughout my lifetime. Um, as an only child, it's kind of, it's an interesting way to grow up and to then, um, kind of navigate the world of relationships. So there's often been a part of me, and I have a son, Uranus trying, that almost stands back and watches, has always watched relationships and thought, well, that's kind of interesting that that's how people relate. 
So I think that was part of it. I think my Venus in the seventh house and Mercury in the seventh house naturally interested in creating bridges and in, you know, somehow connecting people. Um, I think also my mother being Italian growing up in Ireland in a time when Ireland wasn't very used to anybody from outside Ireland meant that um, I was really her translator because she didn't speak much English. So we'd go into stores and um, it wasn't always easy. There, there were, you know, it wasn't always easy in Ireland in those days. And so I watched how people interacted with her and what it was like to be different, I suppose, and how people responded and how, again, to create bridges for her to help her um, connect and to help navigate different language as well, literally, as well as um, a different culture. So I think the language of astrology, translating that language into something that people could, my, my clients and therapy could understand, just came quite naturally because I, I love languages as well. So it was always about really making that language accessible and using the tool of astrology in a practical way. Plus, my background is as a social worker. And so, um, you know, it was really about watching, you know, looking at people and thinking, gosh, you know, with more tools, this would be so much easier. And also how useful astrology is. I mean, I, I the office, at one stage I was working in, in fostering adoption and the social workers used to joke with me because I had them all trained that as soon as a baby was born who was going to be put up for adoption, they marked the exact time of birth. And I said, this is very important. This belongs to this child. You know, it's, it's, there, it's theirs to have for future and so just small things like that made me realize, you know, how, how useful astrology is and how important it is. And I think with relationships, it really helps people to depersonalize things that they take very personally. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, the classic example of kind of couples who maybe one has a lot of water and one has a lot of air and, um, the water person describes the air person as being cold and distant, and the, the air person describes the water person as being engulfing and needy. And when that's broken down and shown in the chart, suddenly there's that awareness that this isn't anything personal to me. This is who my partner is. And why would I want them to be any different? Because this is what I was attracted to. And yes, at times it feels really hard, but maybe there's a bridge we can create where we can meet somewhere in the middle or somewhere. And suddenly the whole energy in the room changes and it, people stop because ultimately what we're really afraid of is not being loved. That, that's really what our fear is. It's that the other person doesn't love us. And I think when astrology explains things as not being personal to us, and that it's got absolutely nothing to do with the person not loving them, then they can the defenses go down and they can really start listening and becoming interested in the differences in their partner and how that really 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 contributes to the richness of their relationship rather than insisting that you know i as the therapist change their partner and make them you know either more emotional or less emotional so um, they're really some of the things that have contributed to kind of my my fascination and my interest in relationship astrology. Mm, those are all good things to contribute to the. I, I really relate with the the acceptance of other people uh, at, for who they are. Not saying that people don't change, but um, like you said, there's a lot of defense mechanisms that go up when we don't understand the differences uh, rather than accepting them um, and then being able to pull back and observe them enough to understand 
like you said, why do we attract these people? Because they are attractive to us because of that growth relationship that we're, we're building within this. Um, but what struck me is one of the first things you said with you finding interest in it, um, at being an only child, because I'm an only child as well. And oh. I, and I also have an exact son, Uranus trine. <laughs> um, oh so, so you're so like, you're talking, and I'm like, let's talk, let's talk about that for a second, because I, that is an interesting point of relationship to begin with, because obviously we, there are parts of our relating style, um, that are born throughout our adolescence and having siblings is a, a quick way to learn how to relate, how to share, uh, you know, all these types of things. And so ha- have you noticed differences within the only child and how they relate in, uh, adult relationships versus, uh, people that have, uh, you know, a plethora of siblings or, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to pick your brain a little bit more about maybe the only child experience. You know, I, I mean, even I think for us as only children, there's there's a very rich, usually internal life. But then it's having to learn how to translate that internal life um, and those internal feelings and what's going on to other people. And I think it's how to, you know, I often think that siblings are the first equal relationships anybody has. Um, in their life really effectively because parents, there's a power imbalance, whereas with siblings, they're your equals. So not having that, the, the relationships then start with friends. And of course, friends come and go. There's much more of that movement. Whereas with siblings, you can love or hate your siblings, but there's that blood tie, which means you have to work at it in some way. Well, not everybody has to, but generally there's more of a need to. So I think there's there's certain skills that are learned in that dynamic that um, I think are more challenging for only children. Things like, um, for example, being teased. I think that can be a little more challenging to recognize how to, when to fight, when not to fight how to fight, what the rules of fighting are, um, and what the rules of humor are, or how to tease and how to kind of know how to deal with that, how to handle with that, dealing with also, um, maybe I think my, my experience of looking at people with siblings is that maybe there is, there's more of an ability to not take offense so easily or take everything personally, because they're so used to their brother or their sister doing that. And so they're, they're used to reacting and kind of letting things go. I think there's probably more tolerance and ability to tolerate people's foibles because you're living in a family. And so you just have to get on with it. I think as only children, that has to be learned and navigated. And, and, I don't know about you, but I think to this day, when I look at family dynamics and, and you know, I spend time with my cousins, my extended family and so on, um, there's still a part of me that feels like an observer rather than being 100% part of that. A hundred percent. Uh, absolutely. Like I feel, <laughs> at least with my family dynamic, I feel like I'm on the, I've always been on the outside, uh, you know, kind of looking in um, and it does feel, I resonated with a lot of the things that you you said. It does have that observer quality, the rich internal life. And, and it's almost, it's interesting with my particular uh, scenario where kind of where you're saying the parents, there is an imbalance of um, 
power dynamic versus the siblings. Uh, but I feel like, well, with my particular chart and the way it is, it was actually more of an equal, like, which is a whole other dynamic, having an authority figure that is, is an equal or overpowered at times, because I had some things to learn <laughs> as, as an individual, um, and, and a lot of Pluto action. Uh, so there's, yeah, I'm, I'm at a loss for words, A, because it's early in the morning for me. So I'm prefacing <laughs> that for, for everyone who's listening. They're like, what's wrong with Mel? It's called <laughs> Venus trining Neptune. And this girl's a little sleepy. Um, but a lot of things you resonate, you said resonate with me. And I've really never thought about that way in really in terms of relationship. And it explains a lot of my own process of uh getting outside of myself and the internalization. And like you said, taking a lot of things personally, because I didn't have those opportunities for, you know, the, the water to roll off the ducks back, you know, like it can get really internalized. Um, and yeah, so much of my life just became clear, Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you see what happens first thing in the morning. You, you never know. What um, one, one thing I was going to say though, as well with, I think only children is though that, um, it, there is an independence that comes, a self-sufficiency maybe. Yeah. Not, not to say that it isn't lonely at times, but I think there is a self-dependence that, that comes from being an only child because there isn't an expectation that anybody else will be there throughout one's life. Whereas what I see with siblings is that there isn't kind of, um, sometimes even unconscious expectation that if they're stuck, the sibling will be there. And wonderfully, a lot of siblings are there for each other. I mean, some being very close friends. And also that, of course, sometimes the friendship circle is purely in the family when there are several members of a family. Whereas I think for us as only children, we have to make that effort to create that community around us. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise it's not going to be there, but it's still always slightly a step away. And so sometimes then going into then an intimate relationship as an adult, there can still be that independence and it's not easy to to share. I mean, at times I've been accused of not really sharing decisions and I didn't do it because I didn't want to because it never dawned on me it was like you know so it took me a while to learn that that kind of what it means to share certain things and and because I just didn't do it oh my god I resonate with that so so much um because it's true there is the self-sufficiency as an only child because you are you entertain yourself right we learn to yes. entertain ourselves we don't have that like looking to someone else to do that and then it creates this really independent drive um and I have had issues with sharing in relationship uh whether it's because I'm, I'm want something just for myself or because like you said, uh, just not being conscious of, uh, you know, adding someone into a decision or et cetera. And I find it ironic that I'm now partnered with another only child. (laughs) 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 And so, and, and so it's also recognizing the balance of, um, when to share and when to integrate together, uh, but also recognizing that obviously we were both, um, part of our, self and growth is this individual independent standpoint. So where the, so we need the independence, we need the space. Um, 
but how do we also come together too so that it's not alienating? Because if you're so self-sufficient, why do you need someone else? You know, uh, and we all need people, <laughs> but uh, sometimes it brings up those questions too. I, I think it's that as only children, we probably are, we, we kind of almost have a kind of um, a head start on the whole process of individuation and separation. But I think where the struggle is more in the interdependence. And I think that's more a little bit where I think the, the area of growth is. Whereas I think maybe when I've seen people from very, particularly bigger families and so on, they, they really do the interdependence very well, but sometimes the separation is hard. It's like they'll still kind of marry the person next door or, or it's, and live next door and still everything is within the family matrix. And so when it comes to maybe, you know, being offered a job, say in another country or something, it's so hard to take it because it means separating from that family, from the tribe. And so, whereas we do that pretty well, it's like, we're, you know, off we go. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was like, the second I turned 18, I moved at least like uh 400 miles away. And then shortly after I moved 3000 miles away, <laughs> like how far away can I get from these? No, I'm just kidding. Well, I, I remember my father once said to me when I went to Hawaii, he said, you really couldn't have gone much further, could you? You know, I, I'm from Ireland. So, you know, and it hadn't even dawned on me. It was like, just a place I wanted to be. So yeah, those things never, I think as I've got older now, I really value much more those attachments. And I love being around my cousins and their kids. And, you know, that's such a joy. But when I was younger, I was just a free spirit. I just felt I was on my own in the world. That was it. Yeah, I, I definitely resonate with that. So, you know, that's the thing, family relationships, the, the power, the comfort that comes from them definitely does make itself known the older you get, because there is, you know, we need each other to rely on each other. Um, I mean, we're our own entities, but having someone to lean on, whether that is emotionally, you know, psychologically, like, you know, mentally airing things out with other people and physically, materially too, to have that support. We, we all need that. And, you know, even if you're the free spirit to begin with, a lot of times you come to realize as life goes on that, uh, relationships are very important. And so is the maintaining of them. Absolutely. We're relationship beings. Absolutely. Yeah. So this brings me to wanting to know a little bit more about the technical side of, uh, of astrology and relationships. Um, and what we're maybe how we're coming at it in an astrology chart, because there's people that are in different camps about looking at, uh, relationships and astrology, like, there's the idea that you can just look at the individual natal chart and you don't even need to look at someone else's chart because you can see everything you want, you know, need to know about relationship in the, the individual. Uh, there's a synastry chart, which is two charts that come together um, that we kind of look at overlays, almost like transits, but not really. They're transits from the other people are transits. Um, the composite where those two synastry charts come together in midpoints, uh, and then uh, there's a Davison chart, which is the same type of midpoints, but it's more in time and space. Then, um, so what? Where do you fall in that? Are they all valuable? What do you think about that? I really value all of those. I mean, I always start with the individual chart, you know, because that's who we are. And I look at um, 
and, and I recently did a talk for, for OPA on this, which, which was kind of interesting. It's not about, you know, people ask us, who is my special someone? And I always try to reframe that into more into what are you looking for? You know, what do you need in relationships? Because it's not about the person. It's about what is in our chart so that we can experience really the love that's within ourselves. That's ultimately what it's about. And I think so the starting point is always the individual chart and looking at what, what is it that we've come Certainly, I believe in this lifetime on this planet to learn about and what role does relationship play in that? And so what are we looking to learn? And then synastry is wonderful because, as you said, it's that overlay of who, what are the energies in somebody that attract us? What are the energies we pull back from? And that happens on a daily basis. We walk along the street and we're drawn towards somebody or in a store, we might chat and say hello to somebody and then we walk miles away from somebody else. So without knowing it, that's already happening. And that's the immediacy of the synastry that either our charts kind of fit in like jigsaw puzzle pieces or they don't. And the composite is really the chart of the relationship itself. It's like two ingredients in, to make up a cake. You mix the two together, say flour and sugar, and then you get something, you bake it, and there you have it. So the composite chart is made up of the two individuals, but yet it's something totally different. It is the chart of the relationships. So then I look at the synastry with the composite chart and also the progressed composite chart, and in some cases, the relocated composite chart. Um, personally, I use the midpoint composite chart. Um, I encourage students to use both the Davison and midpoint and see which one works for you because I think they're both equally valuable. I have, over the years, I've tried both and somehow I keep going back to the midpoint composite chart just myself. Um, and then of course, looking at transits and progressions to the individual charts and to the composite chart. And I think the amazing thing about the composite chart is that it gives a lot of information about the purpose of the relationship. I love looking at the sun in the composite chart because it really describes why are these two people together? What, what is it that they're here to learn about on this planet and to contribute? And the composite is very concrete. To me, it's such a concrete chart. It's literal. It's not, it doesn't have a lot of psychological nuances. Um, so it's a very interesting chart. And the transits really give us an experience of um, what's going on in the relationship at this time, What, how to navigate the energies. And clients sometimes panic because they're like, oh my goodness, you know, Uranus is on the composite ascendant, descendant. Does that mean we're going to split up? And it's like, not necessarily, but there are going to be some changes and you need a little bit of breathing space. So make sure you're not together 24-7 so that you're respecting the transit. Um, so those are really some of the things I look at with with relationship astrology, depending, of course, what the client wants and what the client needs. Yeah. Cause I mean, some people can come to you about relationships that might not be in a relationship. So at that point, we don't have a composite to be looking at, or even a synastry. We come straight to the individual's chart to assess, uh, like you said, uh, what are you looking for? What would suit your, um, you know, it would keep coming back to growth as an individual, because we are talking about relationships, but it all comes back to the self and our experience within them. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I always had a little bit of back and forth between the composite and the, the Davison. I'm like, okay, well, the composite, it gives you the midpoints, which make a lot of sense because midpoints, 
definitely makes sense. But then if you're kind of a sky watcher, uh, you realize that the composite can make uh, aspects and situations where it's, you don't, you know, that would never happen in the sky, basically. Uh, where the Davisons always, it's interesting because of the time and space. Like if we met in this perfect time and space, and this is when that relationship would be born. Um, and they're, they're often... Uh, kind of close or we'll have like planets that are in like opposition from one another, which is fascinating in my mind of just, uh, the, you know, the cycles of the planets and how that works in this, like, uh, theoretical space of the composite versus the actual space of, of the Davison. So it's, um, it's kind of fascinating. And I, I don't know, I, I'm not looking at relationship charts that much. I'm just going to be honest with you there. Maybe in some of my own, even then I'm like, I don't, I don't want to know. I just need to live it. Um, <laughs> uh, but I found that there were, I was resonating with, with both charts. So yeah, like, uh, like Margaret was saying, you know, get in there, see what resonates with you and then, and then stick with it. Well, it's all very symbolic, isn't it? When yeah. we go into realms of composite chart, we're talking very much symbolic because, you know, astronomically they're, they're not, you know, it, it's not a, a mathematical correct configuration in that sense or as you say it's not it's not linked to the sky so we're talking about a symbolic tool that for some reason works now one thing to say of course about the composite chart is that we need an exact time of birth which can make it a little difficult certainly here in Ireland people don't tend to have their time of birth written on their birth cert and so that can be a little difficult so I usually send clients to um contact the hospital if it's still standing and say, please get your exact time of birth because that makes a huge difference. Oh yeah. That's a, yeah. You uh, kind of lose all the nuance of the, the ascendant and the house positions. If you don't have uh, at least one, uh, you know, both times of birth, if you're doing the composite, you'll get, you'll still get the midpoints to some extent, but uh, all that, all that juicy information that you need to know. <laughs> yeah. As an astrologer, it's really frustrating. It's it like, is. The exact time of birth, please. Oh, yes. I know. I, I feel you on that one. I definitely feel you. Um, so another thing I'm kind of curious about with the the technical side is if there's any like misconceptions in analyzing love and relating through the chart, because you know, like you can see a certain aspect and you'll think that would be a very successful love combination. Like maybe someone has Venus conjunct Jupiter or, or, you know, versus someone who might have Venus square Saturn. And they're like, oh, will I ever find love? Or they have Saturn on the descendant. Are there any like, you know, like, I guess, misconceptions in looking at something right away and being like, oh, this is good. Or this is challenging. Or there, is there a gray area there? I, I clients <laughs> sometimes really come in having gone to astrologers who told them things like you will never have a relationship because you've got Saturn in your seventh or eighth house or the fifth house. Or um, I've even heard sadly cases where they were told you will never have children. So um, I, I really don't. Um, I, I personally really feel that every chart has the potential, the individual has the potential to do whatever they want with it. We have free will and choice. That, that's very, very important. And I think all kinds of aspects can be worked with. I think we need to understand the nature of them. So for example, if somebody is Saturn in the seventh house, that Saturn needs to be respected, whether it's through maybe taking relationships a step at a time rather than rushing in, that might work better for that person, putting in strong foundations, 
really getting to know somebody. It might be that they require a degree of stability with somebody, a degree of maturity with somebody. But that does that's very different than not having relationships ever. So you know, I always say to clients, those things are not for me. I know some astrologers believe they are, but that's not the kind of astrology I practice as a psychological astrologer. Um, for me, I practice that there is there are all possibilities. It's what we do with them and how we work with them. So certainly in relationships, I would encourage clients to work with those configurations um, at their most um most expansive rather than at their most limited. That's really how I describe it. So don't fight the energies, don't go upstream, but really get to know them. When you know what the energies are like, then you know what's required of you ideally to go with the flow um, with those energies. So similarly, if people have, say, um, Uranus in the seventh house, I've also had clients say to me, you know, I've been told I, I can't have stable relationships. It's To me, Uranus in the seventh house is about making sure you've got some room to breathe in relationships, you know, maybe having relationships that are not the, the kind of conventional living together in a house with the picket fence in the garden. Maybe you've got two homes. Maybe you've got a holiday home that you take breaks. Maybe one of you has a job that you go away for periods of time. Maybe one of you just goes away for the weekend every so often. So it's really, really getting to know the personality of that planet and what that planet is really asking you to do, but within the context of relationship, because that's the seventh house. So that would be more my interpretation. Yeah. And, and it makes me think of some of the people that are like, I don't, I don't have anything in my fifth house, or I don't have anything in my seventh house. Does that know I'll never find love in relationships because there's no planet there? <laughs> That's such an interesting one. So many clients say that. And I always say, look, it just means you've got more choices. You know, when you've got planets in a house, it means that you probably will go back to learning those lessons over and yes. over. So you're kind of drawn back. It pulls you in. The energy is a bit like I describe it as, you know, a building with, you know, with many rooms and the rooms that have lots of tenants are busier. And so the, our attention is drawn to them. But the other rooms that are empty are still there, but there's a lot more space in them and freedom to do what we want. And they're not as noisy and busy, so they don't demand as much. That, that's really how I describe empty houses. But absolutely, it doesn't describe at all that you won't have a relationship. Yeah. Just because it's empty. If anything, it's, I feel like uh, if it's empty there, like you said, there's almost less pressure in that area, yes. uh, you know, because you're not constantly learning, you know, if a planet is in a house, it's there to teach you something basically, or bring you back to experiences uh, to experience that archetype with um, over and over and over. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. There, there aren't that many breaks in it. Yes. I know. <laughs> so it just keeps on going. Um, but you know, that's the thing when you start to get uh, further into astrology, you you look at things such as house rulers. And so maybe maybe the ruler of your fifth house or the ruler of your seventh house is somewhere else in the chart, but it's highly aspected and it's got a lot going on. And so it's going to draw those houses right in. So sometimes you have to look in other areas. It's not so blatant into the house itself. Um, but it's, yeah, you can find that all of a sudden you went from nothing in your seventh house to the seventh house ruler, just being the center of your charts in some way, you know? Absolutely. There's always something, you know, everything is, is quite busy in the charts, but, but it's just some, some areas are less busy and, and, you know, there's more choice and that makes it, you know, that's, that's great where, you know, it's probably another area that's very busy. 
Yeah. I like choice. I like, I'm, I'm a fan of choice. Um, (laughs) Well, you already kind of answered my question earlier. I was going to ask about transits and progressions. Um, and you, and you say that you, uh, will even calculate the, like the composite, like a together charts with progressions. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I will do the composite progress chart. I think it's quite interesting to look at. I think, you know, progressions in individual charts are very helpful because, you know, we know that when there's a progression, sometimes we start a relationship when the progressions bring us together, but then we have to look, are there enough other sinistry aspects to keep a relationship solid even after, or is it just a temporary thing? And it can be very helpful because, you know, we, we can let sometimes when people come and they've just met somebody and they say, you know, is this likely to be long-term? We, we can never say, of course, but we can say, look, just be aware that these progressions are going on. So the, this is an opportunity to learn this through that person, whether this is long-term or not, you're more likely to know when the progressions come to an end. Um, and with the progress composite chart, it can be very interesting to see where the relationship is at. I mean, I don't use it all the time. Again, it depends on the questions asked by clients, but I do use it sometimes and it's interesting. But, you know, we we it's almost like when we go into the progress composite chart, we're, we're going more and more into the abstract in yeah. some way. So also to be careful of that. And, um, you know, I remember Liz Green many years ago said, you know, the, the key themes in, in any chart or whether you're working with relationships or career or anything, the key themes will repeat themselves several times. And so you don't always need to go and look for additional tools and additional tools and additional tools. When you've got your core tools and the themes repeat themselves, then you know those are the core themes. And so increasingly, that's what I kind of look at. What what are the main themes here and have they been repeated several times? Sometimes if I really get stuck and I can't get you know, an answer to what I'm searching for, then I'll do the progress composite chart, but, but it wouldn't be my standard practice. You're not for your first go-to. You're like, let's progress this composite. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, it makes me wonder too, if there's any, um, and of course there's so many variables to this, so we'll take it with a grain of salt, this question, but are there any like particular transits or progressions that uh, you might kind of notice repeatedly in, in people's charts that might show up when maybe for like major events of like meeting someone or getting married. Uh, I remember see, uh, uh, April Elliott Kent once said she noticed a lot of times um, like progressed Mars on the sun when people would get married, uh, which I thought was interesting because Mars has kind of like a separative quality to it. But I don't know if you've noticed any patterns. Um once you again, <laughs> transit wise, I do notice that often um, when Saturn is aspecting the ascendant and descendant, um, really there's the emphasis is on relationships. And that can be a time when people meet somebody. So I think that's always an interesting time to look out for. It's like, it's like, you know, Saturn manifests and wants something to happen. So even if people don't quite meet somebody, Usually when I see that, I'll say to a client, you know, it's relationships, are relationships on your mind? And they'll say, yes, I've just started thinking about relationships and there's the Saturn. And sometimes when people have been in a relationship for quite a while and they're wondering whether it's the time for it to become more serious, to go to another level, often the Saturn is there as well. So that's probably the one thing that I've seen pretty consistently over the years. Other things vary, progressions vary. Um, often I've seen, you know, progress Venus making a conjunction with 
um, and now with a planet in somebody else's chart, and you can see that there is, you know, that connection with somebody else's sun or with somebody else's Venus or sometimes somebody else's Mars. So that can happen. But I haven't followed or noticed that as consistently as certainly the Saturn on the on the angles. I mean, mm. that's pretty much there very, very often. Um, and sometimes, I mean, the other thing is, interestingly, Uranus, when somebody is not in a relationship, I mean, of course, Uranus, expect the unexpected. When somebody's not in a relationship, and I've seen Uranus to um, the descendant, and suddenly people have met somebody. And, and literally from one minute to the next, they've gone from, I don't ever want to be in a relationship to, hey, I want to marry this person. So that's also quite a lot of fun and interesting to watch with people, um, particularly people who are not in relationship and didn't think they wanted to be in a relationship. And then they come back to me six months later and say, guess what? (laughs) Surprise! (laughs) Oh, I love that. Well, and I resonate with that too, because if I, if I do recall, uh, my, the beginning of a seven and a half year relationship I had, which, you know, we think about Saturn and seven year cycles. Uh, I met that person when Saturn was on my ascendant. Um, and also Uranus was square my Venus (laughs) at that time. Uh, And funny enough, we actually separated when Uranus was sextile, my Venus. <laughs> so it's like it's like activated it, but then it also released it when Uranus was sextile, my Venus, and the North Node was on my Venus, which is my seventh house ruler. Um, so it's funny how how that works. Um, and I'm very interested to see because I'm about to be at my Uranus opposition here, uh, and I have Uranus exactly on my ascendant. So I, I, it's going to we'll see what happens then. Uh, interesting. Yes. It will be interesting, I'm sure. Um, So I will take those pieces that you just brought (laughs) forth and put them in my pocket for later. Um, But yeah, that yeah, Saturn makes a lot of sense, and I've been getting a lot of clients uh, recently, a lot of Leo risings that have Saturn moving through the seventh house right now, and Jupiter as well. And there definitely is that relationship component of. of next level, you know, like where do we take this next level, but also some struggles within that, you know, like it's Saturn is dampening it. So where do we go with this? Cause some, um, sometimes there's divorce that's related with that too, because it's run its course and everyone's different. Every relationship has different, you know, trajectories. Um, but yeah, I definitely noticed to the Saturnian theme of, um, the glue, that holds connection. Absolutely. And, and it makes us pay attention, doesn't it, Saturn? It just yes. it, it kind of pulls us and says, you're going to pay attention. It's a bit like I sometimes think of children, you know, they want to go out to play and the parent is like, no, you've got to have your dinner first. You know, that's Saturn. It's like, first, you've got to do the work. You know, you got to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. Though so Saturn has us paying attention all the time. We're like, Saturn, come on, stop yes. on my shoulder. Come on. All right. I know you're there. Um, (laughs) So, okay. So now I want to go into pick your psychological brain here uh, with relationships and kind of wondering it planets, um, what planets in, we'll just start with our own chart, uh, you know, because obviously they're, they're operating within our being, we have all these people talking in our, in our heads and in our hearts all the time, you know? And so what planets have you noticed the most kind of like psychological impact on love and relationships? Like, we think Venus, we think Mars, um, but what are, or maybe a few and how they, how they relate in your mind of like, 
Um, for me, the moon and Mercury are the most important ones. Um, the moon, because it's our emotional life and relationships are about connecting emotionally to another human being. Um, so the moon is, you know, how, what our experience, what our very early experience was of nurturing, how, how we, how we experienced it from the glasses we wear with our own moon, because it's not really so much about the other person, it's how it resonates with us, whether we were fed in a way that we could absorb the food or not and digest it and process it. And the moon is also about our experience of attachment. And that's absolutely crucial because because our experience of early attachment, our style of attachment, whether we're anxious, whether we're avoidant, all of those things really impact on our style of relationship as adults. Um, and however much work and however conscious we are of it, there is still a fundamental style of attachment that is there that, of course, we can work with and heal a lot with. But as long as we know it, then we can also share that with our significant other and with people who matter in our lives. Because if we're not aware of what's happened to us, what, what it felt like, what how we respond, then how can we expect somebody else to know that? And kind of, and that's a huge issue in relationships that people get together and feel that and believe that the other person doesn't love them because they're not responding to them emotionally in a way that feeds them. But often people, we respond to other people often from the perspective of our moon rather than their moon. And so if we understand what their moon is like, we can respond to them from the perspective of their moon. And I think this is evident with children often because a child with moon in Taurus is likely to be comforted if they get upset after school and they come home by maybe a hug or some cookies or some milk, whereas a child with moon in Gemini is much more likely to really, they're not going to want anybody around them. They want to talk about it. They just want to chat and talk. So if we understand the, the needs of our moon, the emotional needs of our moon, then we really know what comforts us. And also it means that we can learn to comfort and self-soothe ourselves. So we're not depending on another person to comfort us. And so if the other person isn't available, which they may not be, I mean, why would they be? Then we know how to comfort and soothe ourselves. And equally, we know how to ask and say maybe, oh, I'd love a hug if you are okay with that, rather than you didn't give me a hug and you don't love me anymore and I hate you. And you know how things escalate. Yes. Um, <laughs> So I think the moon is crucial. I think the other thing is Mercury because Mercury is communication. Mercury is the bridge. Mercury is the way we translate our emotions into words so that we can connect with another person. And without Mercury, how do we connect? I mean, without that bridge. And I don't mean just verbally, of course. We do it through our, through our expression. We do, do it through um, our, our language, our physical language, our bodily language. We do it through sound. We can do it through music. We do it through art. There are so many ways of expressing Mercury. Um, but Again, if we don't know our Mercury, then we don't know how we express ourselves. And we don't know, we also sometimes forget that we need to learn how to listen. And our Mercuries listen in different ways. And in relationships, one of the biggest issues that couples come to me, either in psychotherapy or in um, couples work with astrology, is um, miscommunication. 
And part of it is that emotions get so big that it's very hard to hear the other person. People are so triggered. And so then it's about working with the moon to the point that they can then hear each other and then engaging their mercuries. And also, again, different mercuries communicate in different ways. Mercury and fire and air are very quick, very quick with words. Sometimes they don't remember anything they've said though. So in the heat of the moment, they can say a million things. And the other person, maybe with mercury and earth and water, is taking note of everything, taking everything to heart. And a few days later, say, I can't believe you said that to me. And the person with, with mercury and fire says, I never said that, or I didn't mean that. And so the whole thing is escalated. So if both people are aware of their mercury, you know, the mercury and fire person might remember and might think, okay, maybe I need to take a deep breath and think before I say something. And the mercury and water and earth person might say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't take everything so personally because they're going to have forgotten all about it tomorrow. So maybe I need to go back to them and say, which part of that did you really mean or do you still mean? So it's all of those things. So I think those two planets are absolutely critical in terms of relationship dynamics. That makes complete sense because when we're talking about relationship dynamics and relationships, most of us want them to uh, to last <laughs> for a decently long amount of time. Um, and being emotionally sovereign, like I love what you brought up with, like, because that's what it's the thing is, you know, with the with the moon, uh, especially as people that are like Cancer. Capricorn access speaking as one there is there's a constant reparenting and, and you know uh working through conditioning and and learning to soothe yourself and care for yourself in some way and we a lot of times we look to our partner to do that when um that's not necessarily their job they can be <laughs> they can be part of it uh but when we care for ourselves um and and the self-love and attention that comes through that and the awareness like you said because we all have different emotional needs so we have to become aware of them um and that's why we get mad at uh, our partners and our friends and our you know just anybody that we interact with because there is this projection of need and their needs are can be totally different than ours um, and yeah, and it could be grasping at straws. You're trying to get your needs, but what are the other persons and do they even know that? And so all this, all this is valuable information, uh, and why I would think anybody that sits with you is very lucky for, to have that, you know, that, that awareness and, and see that. Cause it's worth its weight in gold once you know, cause if you don't know, then, you know, it's just these instinctive, like, yeah, it's it's valuable knowledge to have. And the mercury part, I mean, we got to communicate. Communication is like the number one thing in relationships in my mind. Well, I think it's just becomes, just going back to the moon, it's so easy that if we don't know how to self-soothe, we can easily parentify our partners. And then once that power imbalance shifts and, you know, regardless of the age, but one becomes a parent, then the intimacy side can suffer because, you know, I mean... The, the whole intimate, we don't want to be intimate with somebody who feels like our child or vice versa, like our parent. And so it kind of snowballs into something much bigger, I think, rather than catching it at the origin, which is really the moon. And it's amazing how, I mean, I often wonder, you know, why don't we teach these things in school? Why don't we teach children about their moon in school? Why don't we teach how children can comfort themselves in school? And Years ago, I wrote to all the schools in Ireland offering to go in and talk to transition year students for free with the parents and the teachers there. 
I didn't get a single reply from any of the schools. Now, this was quite a while ago, but thinking of what we've all been through COVID and my, my cousins, um, two of them, my cousin's daughters, two of them are teachers and they teach little ones here in Ireland. And, you know, the stress these little children have gone through with, with the whole COVID thing and thinking, imagine if they had um, the skills to really understand more about their emotional selves and how to get their emotional needs met and how to also be able to say to their family members, you know what, I'd love somebody to just give me a hug right now, or I'd love somebody to read me a story right now, or I'd love somebody to play with me because I'm feeling lonely right now, rather than ending up jumping up and down, maybe getting into trouble in order to get the attention they really want. And, and so I think those are just such basic skills. And that's what I love about astrology. And, you know, I'm a Virgo rising. I like astrology to be practical. To me, it's not just something that we can all talk in jargon to each other about. It needs to be something that is of use and of service to people. And I think, you know, we have these tools. And if we learned them at a younger age, it would make such a huge difference in our relationships. Mm, I 110% on that. Like I'm a, I really think emotional intelligence should be taught in, in the school system. Yes. And and it doesn't make sense why it's not, I mean, because we don't live in that world. We really don't. And, And that, that, that can also stem back to the idea of like patriarchy versus matriarchy and like, you know, honoring the emotional self and the being which operates. uh, It doesn't matter what gender you identify with. The emotional self is operating all the time and is usually the number one uh, response. Even when we think we're super logical or we're super practical, there's emotion that's behind that because it's the instinctual and the intuitive self um, that helps us, you know, navigate life and and all the uncertainty that is always coming at us. So it has this emotional layer and to not have the the tools to work with that. It's like the number one skill we should be learning. So I am 110% behind you on that. Well, well, absolutely. Because, you know, first of all, also that for, you know, first of all, it helps to teach people about the moon is so less threatening than saying to people, let's talk about your feelings because we can describe how the moon is and people go, yes, I, yes, absolutely. So, because there's so much that's attributed to different feelings in our society. It's like you're hypersensitive, you're oversensitive, this, that, and the other, rather than say to somebody, you've got a moon in water. And so feelings are your natural way of kind of connecting in the world. And it only depersonalizes it from them. And the same with couples. When we describe each other's, you know, when I describe each other's moon to the couple, they suddenly think, oh, that makes sense. Of course, that's why you react like that. And suddenly they realize it has nothing to do with them. It's totally to do with the other person. So I, I think that would be wonderful. And I agree with you about, you know, emotional intelligence in schools. Absolutely. We, we need to really, um, I, I think that's crucial. It, it's absolutely the foundation for us to function as happy human beings. And it's also how it connects us with our heart, mm-hmm. because I think the more connected we are with our heart, the less likely we are to behave in ways that are destructive, self-destructive, as well as destructive to the collective. So I think the more we distance ourselves from emotions, um, the less connected we are with that heart space. 
Um, and interestingly, um, you know, we were talking about you'd met Rachel, who works with us in relationships and astrology. And I remember the first conference I was at that I met Rachel at, I think it was the Arizona ESAR conference. And she did this amazing exercise with me about dropping from the head into the heart. And it was such a simple exercise, but it was so powerful. And I've done that with a lot of clients since. And I think that's the lunar space as well. That That's really the important space. And if we can even just remind ourselves to connect with that space a few times a day, it just, first of all, it calms us down and brings us back into a place of feeling at peace. And secondly, really helps us to then use our mercury to connect from a heartfelt place rather than just from this computer-like whizzy headspace. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the heart holds the wisdom. The heart holds our you know innate wisdom. And when we're not in it and we're swirling around, you know, when we get to the mercurial part first, it's almost like check in with the moon, then let it yes. come through the mercury. It's not mercury to moon, it's moon to mercury. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's such a lovely way of putting it, Melissa. I love that, yes. Yeah, so there you have it, moon and mercury. You know, I'm Venus so important, Mars important, all the planets important. But really, the moon, I mean, you want to feel good? You want to, you want to, <laughs> you know, you want to get your needs met? by yourself <laughs> and, other, and other people uh, and then other people. <laughs> um, and, and you want to be able to communicate what those actually are. Those are the places to start. Uh, and that, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's good relationship and good relationship with yourself. Right. Cause at the end of the exactly. day, yeah. that's where it starts. Yeah. That's where it starts. Um, so I guess a, just a, a few more questions were, I, we might've touched on this a little bit because you, through your years of being a, you know, a psychotherapist, I was just wondering if there were like repeat aspects of the human condition that you see, uh, in practice that in relation to love and partnerships that just keep kind of coming up, whether, and usually I would guess that there are challenges, um, more so than successes. Uh, usually I'm, I'm assuming not too many people come to therapy with their successes. <laughs> Let's talk about success <laughs> that I had. No. <laughs> you know, there's always a mixture. They, they usually, you know, couples that come to therapy are really are very courageous because they're willing to make themselves vulnerable in front of a stranger and expose things that are quite vulnerable and allow the other person to expose things about themselves. So really to say that it takes incredible courage, and I always really admire and respect that. So that's such a strong starting point, you know, that there's this willingness to really do the work. And it is work, you know, counseling is work, couples therapy is work, and it's pretty grueling because there's that constant mirror in front. And, um, you know, so I, I really have the highest admiration. And I think regardless of whether couples decide to separate or stay together, and there's really a mixture of both. Some couples come and then decide really with the awareness they, they now have, um, they decide to go their separate ways, but at least they do it again in a conscious manner out of choice and knowing why they're doing it. And often those separations are much more amicable. They yes. just kind of... Um, a real there's a lovely sense of them as much as there can be with any separation um and the couples who stay together really learn some tools about how to um really 
just some tools about how to work together. Again, that bridge, it's really that, that bridge, that mercurial bridge of where can the bridges be put? Where are the weaker points? And of course, working as a couple in therapy, though, does entail usually individuals doing their own work as well. So I often recommend the two individuals to have their own separate therapy, obviously not with me if I'm working with them as a couple, but separately to have their therapy so that they're working with their own things alongside. And that really brings about vast improvement pretty rapidly because the change is happening. So regardless, one way or the other, whichever way the relationship is going, it usually happens. But I mean, the usual issues that come to therapy, you know, over and over are presented as the presenting problem, which, of course, is never necessarily the actual actual problem. Misunderstandings, miscommunication, um, lack of intimacy, one person wanting more space, the other person wanting more closeness. Um, And then there's the bigger issues like children, having children, not having children, Um, family dynamics, taking care of elderly family members who maybe are unwell or have um, health issues like Alzheimer's and so on. There's a lot of things that happen, of course, over the course of life that really create big challenges that sometimes couples just are exhausted and they need some help to really reconnect with their resources, both individually and as a couple. Um, So it's really a vast assortment, but usually it's around those spheres, you know, that, that, that something feels like it's just not working at the moment. And sometimes it's that one person is also developmental stages matter. If there's a big difference in age, couples are going through, say, midlife transit at very different times. Um, if the ages are similar, they might be going through those midlife transits together. So, um, there's pros and cons to that. There's an understanding if you're both going through t- through it together, but also it can be challenging. If both people are going through their Pluto square together, that's pretty intense. Or you mentioned the Uranus opposition. That's a time when there's a tendency to want some freedom and explore. And that can also, you know, if you're going through it together, you might decide to maybe just up sticks and go off somewhere and do something together and explore freedom together. If one person is going through it and the other isn't, one person might want need a little bit more freedom than the other. And because that comes suddenly in the relationship, but before maybe everything was going along, that can just throw things out of balance until both people become aware. It's the midlife transits. How do we navigate this because couples go through enormous transits through a relationship. So um, it's really often about helping couples to see what's going on for each other. So it's that neutral third party of reflecting back and helping them to to just notice things they haven't noticed. I mean, I use emotionally focused therapy a lot with couples when I'm working just with therapy. And I love the, you know, the dynamics, the loops that people go around, that, mm. that there's a presenting problem and then what's what are the real feelings and then what are the deeper feelings underneath that? And so let's address the attachment issues and the deeper feelings underneath that because otherwise the loops keep going. And the very fact of kind of seeing it as loops takes it away from the individual. So it's not somebody doing it to me. It's both of us getting into this loop. And so the couple then can kind of get together to try and change and break this cycle, these, you know, these cyclical loops that they're going round and round in, which it's like going round a hamster wheel. It's it's so demoralizing. Yes. And exhausting, you know, and it's like doing, uh, I forget the, 
my mind has forgot the quote right now, but you know, doing the same thing over and, and expecting. Oh, it's, a different it's the result. definition of insanity. Absolutely. Yes. Doing the same thing. I mean, the one thing I would say is I often wish that couples would come a little bit earlier. Mm. So when they're first having some niggles rather than wait until a lot has happened. Um, so I just always encourage couples really in the end, it saves time and money because it means less work at that stage rather than down the road when a lot has happened. And, you know, there's been a lot of hurt and ruptures in the relationships, particularly when there's been things like betrayals and betrayals of trust, as well as um, betrayals in terms of um, having relationships with other people and so on. Yeah. So it makes, it makes sense to be uh, proactive when you start to find just a little bit of the, the imbalance, would you say there's even benefit just to uh, participating in therapy when all is going well? And absolutely. I really, I, I think the old, you know, I grew up in Catholic Ireland and, um, you know, it, I mean, it was pretty challenging as you can imagine, but, um, you know, uh, one of the things though, that I always thought was such a good idea was having pre-marriage kind of counseling, you know, but not obviously under the auspices of a church, but unless you're religious and you want to have it under those auspices, but I think it's great to have, um, a pre-marriage or a pre-relationship or a pre, whether you're in a couple, whether you're non-monogamous, whether whatever your, your relationship arrangement is to actually have some pre-work so that when you start a relationship with one or more people that you actually get that input at that point. Because to know those differences about you and so on, you're kind of then starting the relationship already with those tools. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think it's a great way to start so that then when things maybe get a little challenging, you, you already kind of have some tools and you might want to go back, of course, some kind of therapy or astrology work, but you've already got those tools in your knapsack as such. Mm, yes, I think that is good advice for those who will take it <laughs> uh, because, hey, you know, being proactive, that's uh, being aware of what I'm getting from our whole conversation is just the value of awareness with the tools of astrology and then the third party uh, kind of mediating view that helps you just look at yourself and the relationship as its own entity, because that does speak for itself um, within the this more, you know, a different type of context um, so that we can navigate it because we all want successful relationships, right? No one wants to be in disharmony. Um, so the, these are the tools. So that being said, Margaret, what can, uh, what can you tell us before we leave about uh, the upcoming program? Um, once again, when it starts, uh, maybe some of the things that are going to be taught with, within it. Absolutely. We start on October 30th and the early bird rate finishes on September 30th. And if you're a member of any of the main orgs like NCGR, ESAR, OPA, the UK Astrological Association or AFAN, you get a 10% reduction. So do make good use of that. Also, I'd like to say we're offering two diversity scholarships. So please do apply. We'd love to have you on the course. And um, we're going to cover everything on the course from the individual chart is the starting point. We're going to look at the different planets in the individual chart, the elements, the houses, 
Then we're going to move on to relationship with others. We're going to look at synastry and composite and lots of examples. And we're going to have some supervision groups as well. So there'll be opportunities to actually talk with each other. And we're going to encourage everybody on the course to have their own WhatsApp group to keep in touch. So it's going to be a very exciting and dynamic course. It's live. So you have the opportunity to interact with us. The first half hour will be the presentation and sorry, the first hour will be the presentation and the last half hour will be class discussion. If you miss the class for any reason, you can listen to the recording. It will be available to you. Um, but we're really excited about having a live class where people can talk to us and ask questions and interact with each other. So, um, and as I said before, do come to our free webinar if you're around this Sunday. It's at eight o'clock Irish time. And um, everyone is very welcome. You can register on the relationshipsandastrology.com um, website on our contact page. And we'd love to hear from you. We're also on Facebook. We're on Instagram. So do join us in any of those ways at any time. We, you know, we always love some interaction on Facebook. You can ask questions and so on. And um, Yes, our website, as I said, is relationshipsandastrology.com, and you can get in touch with me at astrologypsychological.com as well. Perfect. All right. Well, uh, I always share uh, a blog post uh, for the guests that come on this program. So you can find me at energeticprinciples.com where I'll share Margaret's information so you can get in touch with her, but also the uh, course information that she just shared about. And that, this course is running, a, like you don't have to do it all, but if you did do it all, it runs through next spring, right? It is a- Absolutely. And you get a certificate at the end of it. So- um... Um, yeah, you know, you can you can do, as I say, just, you know, in, in four sections or you can do ideally the whole year would be wonderful because then you've got it goes from one, you know, one one course into the other. So it kind of all ties in nicely together, but entirely up to you. And it's on Sundays. So it means that everybody around the world can join in. Perfect. Yeah. So if you have felt the call to relational astrology, or you just happen to be, we were talking about this before we started recording about having, uh, being drawn towards, um, you know, certain people are drawn to us for, with certain questions. Like I'm not really a relationship astrologer. People come to me for like bigger life questions or mundane questions. And Margaret's talking about, oh, people come to me, you know, with their seventh house planets of the relational stuff. So if you find that the people that come to you are asking about relationships, this could be, you know, the opportunity that really helps you dial in those techniques um, and, and answer that call. Cause I think a lot of times people come to us and we don't even realize quite what our call is until we have it reflected back to us once again in relation. Um, and, uh, yeah, so this is a wonderful opportunity because there's not a whole lot of programs out there that are focusing on relationships. So this is that opportunity, um, which of course, like I said, I'm going to share a blog post for Margaret and have all the information about the course, up there and try to get this out a little early. So some of you can catch the webinar that is going on this Sunday. Um, you can also find me over at energeticprinciples.com. I already said that I was going to say social media. Uh, that's where <laughs> I do the Instagrams and the Facebooks. Do you, are you over on Instagram or Facebook, Margaret? We are, you? we're all, we're on, we're on Instagram and Facebook both. Absolutely. So you can get us at both. Yeah. Relationships and astrology. Perfect. 
Um, okay. Anything else that I have to say here and announce, I will say, if you want to sign up for my new monthly newsletter, the heavenly wind, uh, you can do that on the, uh, through this podcast in the description and over at my website as well. Uh, by the time this airs, the October one will go out, but I'll send a second round out a few days after. So if you, those who sign up late can get it and it's full of meaty, juicy details about all the transits for the month, uh, the lunations, a, an elemental tarot spread and of course the animal ambassador of the month who will be walking with us all so definitely go and sign up for that um what else now if you like listening to astrology podcasts relationships in astrology you know leave a review where you listen to this uh spread the good word sharing is caring send it to a friend you know it's a, it's a sign of relational uh, it's a bridge send the bridge over. I love it. Send the bridge uh, because it helps myself and Margaret be seen further. Um, And so, yeah, well, it was wonderful talking to you, Margaret, about relationships and all those juicy details, especially the only child stuff. I really do appreciate that. It helped open my eyes and I, I, I appreciate that of you. Oh, Melissa, it's been an absolute joy and delight talking to you. Thank you. And that only child stuff, I hadn't really thought about a lot before. And now I'm already thinking maybe it would be a good topic to do at a conference or, you know, as a workshop or something. So thank you so much. That's just been wonderful. It's been an absolute joy. And thank you for all that you do for the community and everything. Thank you, Melissa. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear that talk. So you better put it together. (laughs) Uh, You have been called. Uh, All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us today. Uh, We wish you the best in your love and relationships. And as always, may the stars be with you. Mm